It seems like some are going to be able to get their COVID-19 vaccine booster sooner rather than later. You see the immune response trickle down over that six to eight months, and then you get that booster. And literally seven days later, because you do have memory in your immune system, boom, way up and way beyond where the initial vaccination took that level. But before those COVID-19 boosters come out for the majority of the population, there is an urgent and continued call to get people vaccinated for the first time. If we don't vaccinate faster than the virus replicates, we're not gonna get out of this thing ever. It's just gonna keep going and going and going and going because the virus wants to live and it's gonna mutate in the way that it will live. And don't forget about the flu. You don't hear anything else I say today. Go get your flu shot. In fact, we know that getting a flu shot improves outcomes from COVID. So we got a lot to do. I'm Rich Clindworth, and we're looking at our current COVID-19 situation as fall 2021 begins in season three, episode two of Talk Like a Pirate. We're joined now for the second time on Talk Like a Pirate with Dr. Paul Bullen, who is the chair of internal medicine at ECU's Brody School of Medicine. Dr. Bolin, thanks for joining us. Sure. Since COVID-19 information changes as time goes on, we are recording this episode of Talk Like a Pirate on September 13th, 2021, inside of a conference room in ECU's Brody School of Medicine. ECU's mask mandate is still in order at this point, so we are inside and socially distant and wearing masks. First thing, though, uh, before we get into this, Dr. Bolin, how are you doing with everything? Doing good. Good days, bad days, but thank you. So we're a, a year and a half from this initial shutdown of the country to battle the first wave of COVID-19. What is the situation right now? Our vaccination rates, unfortunately, did not um, proceed as rapidly as needed, leaving a, a door open for uh, what we know now as a variant, uh, the Delta variant. And it's got to play out. Um, we had 7,100 cases in North Carolina today. We're sort of in a plateau as far as cases. Hospitalizations have dropped in the state about 10% over the past week. Testing rates have gone way up. Testing positivity rates have gone down. Uh, part of that uh, is, I hope, a good sign, but part of it clearly is a selection bias. With people going back to school, they get exposed. Frantic parent, I'm one of them, uh, go get a test right now. I uh, did that to my son. A lot of that positivity rate, we weren't testing as many people before. And so there's a little bit of uh, false expansion of, of that rate. So um, I think we'll be in this plateau for probably another uh, week or so. Though it's disappointing that we're plateaued, uh, I certainly shared with a lot of people, if you were at the game uh, on Saturday, uh, which I was outside the game, and that school has started back, the county fairs here, et cetera, et cetera, you could make an argument that we're flat is a huge success. We gotta let that play out for another week or so. I do think we will come down. We are certainly not as bad a shape as many states further south than the extreme northwest. There are states there that are really struggling. So yes, it's tough here, but it's not as bad as it is there. Back in the winter, we were upwards of 150 COVID cases in the hospital at any one time. And now we're running around 80. So 
close to half, right? But before in the winter, uh, because we put a limit on only emergent health care, we only probably had 400 and some beds open at that time. And so the total workload was less. Now, all of that delayed health care has become more urgent. And so they are now in the hospital. And so we're taking care of almost well, over 800 beds now. Even though we only have 80 COVID cases, the workload is much greater. And during that transition from last winter to now, we've had a number of people who have decided that they can't work for sometimes because they're sick, sometimes because there's fear, a number of reasons. Uh, and of course, now the, the COVID uh, vaccine mandates is playing into that as well. And so what does that do for the patient who is in the hospital, whether it's a patient with COVID or a patient that does not have COVID? We've done an extraordinary job of managing that. We've all seen stories on the internet where just tragic things have happened. A, a ruptured appendix in an ED, an uh, individual in another state who had an MI and went to at least 43 hospitals or something I read, uh, myocardial for a heart attack. And so uh, there are tragic cases that have occurred. Every day I'm astounded that we've been able to keep pace with what we have here. Of those dying from COVID right now, what percentage have had the vaccine, had a vaccine? Right. So different numbers all over the place. What we're seeing right now, I call it the 90 and 99. And that is, if you look at people who get COVID, only about 10% of them have been vaccinated. If you look at the people in the hospital, it's only about 1% nationally. Ours is a little higher here. And of course, every step you take from being infected to being a hospitalized to death, those percentages are better, better, better for vaccine. So vaccines were designed, as you may know, and studied against hospitalization or serious illness. So it's not surprising that we get much better performance there than just keeping you from getting infected. So out of all those vaccines, do we have one that's the front runner <laughs> of doing the job that it's supposed to do? I think the three major vaccines in the United States are all uh, excellent. The mRNA vaccines, Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, I think uh, are the front runners. Johnson & Johnson may be a slight step back. There may be some data from the FDA coming out pretty soon about that and some position statements. There's a little bit of data that Moderna uh, may have a little bit more sustainability. I don't think it's an intrinsic property of the molecule. I think it is that the Pfizer, and this will come back to play when we talk about uh, booster shots. Uh, the Pfizer protocol, the shots were given three weeks apart. The Moderna was four weeks. And delaying that time is probably important for the immune response. We know that uh, women uh, have had more side effects. That's been very consistent, especially young women. These are not catastrophic side effects, but feeling bad, feel like you have the flu for a couple of days, that type of thing. And we also know that those individuals seem to have had a better response clinically to the vaccine with less disease. What about kids in the vaccines? How close are we? What age groups? Getting real close below uh, age 12. Uh, the head of the CDC just made some comments about that. Pfizer, I think is the only one yet, uh, has submitted two sets of uh, pediatric data for review to the uh, FDA. I, I don't know where they are with that. So boosters, where are we and what does it mean for someone that has J&J, Moderna, and Pfizer? J&J, we don't know. Pfizer and Moderna will probably be grouped into one. The Brits released their guidance 
And sometimes this winter, and they give a date, they're going to start vaccinating immunocompromised, comma, all healthcare workers, comma, and anyone above the uh, age of 50. I don't know where the heads are with uh, the CDC. I don't have insight into that. My favorite source, uh, Tony Fauci, has come out and said that uh, he thinks we need it, but maybe a little bit down the road. I do like the down the road thing. I just reviewed at our weekly update uh, yesterday that the Pfizer data shows a, a real fall off at eight months. Whether it needs six months or eight months, I don't know. Another issue that we have is, as this is happening, I don't know for everybody else, but I know at ECU, the flu shots arrive next week, which is incredibly important. In fact, we know that getting a flu shot changes, improves outcomes from COVID. So we got a lot to do. They did come out with guidance that you could get your COVID booster and your flu shot together. I might prefer to separate those personally, but the guidance from the CDC is they can occur together. Why would you personally uh, separate them? I believe there's a better immune response to each individually if they're separated. That's probably more belief than science, but we all have to deal with our beliefs. Let's go to J&J, the people that got that one shot. When it comes time for boosters, will it be a J&J booster, or could you get the Pfizer or Moderna? And then if you get that, would you have to go through the two to three shot cycle? The answer is no one knows. I'm leaning that there will be a switch to the mRNA. I don't know that, and I believe it will only be one. Again, if you look at the data in the New England Journal that came out Wednesday night, the production of what we call neutralizing antibodies, those that can kill the virus independent of any other part of the immune system. So they're like the nuclear bombs of the immune system. You see the immune response trickle down over that six to eight months, and then you get that booster. And literally seven days later, because you do have memory in your immune system, boom, way up and way beyond where the initial vaccination took that level. It is a very responsive sort of slap in the face for the immune system to, hey, start making this stuff again. And it's highly effective. So I think probably get away with one shot, but again, I'm only speculating. Have you heard anything about the long-term effects of the vaccine, negative effects on people and kids? Uh, uh, two things. Uh, one is obviously there's no long-term data uh, because it's been a short term. If you look at the person years, the amount of study that was done for this vaccine is unprecedented. It is amazing. But again, it's short term for a whole lot of people. Pfizer and, and other companies are tracking this long term, but there doesn't seem to be any suggestion of stuff. There's been all kinds of internet type data that it affects everything known to man uh, regarding fertility. And there's really been almost no good peer-reviewed data that that is the case. What's, what's Mo- that? Okay. To finish one point on that, most of the symptoms are, are very short-lived. You know, people in bed for two days feel like they got the flu, and then they're sort of over it. What's that like for you as a physician, seeing all that stuff on the Internet and people believing it? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I have my own set of beliefs. We, we all have to deal with our interpretations of reality, and that's a, a gray, you know. We all have red lines we don't like to cross. Um, to answer your question, is hard, but I won't bore the audience with a... Uh, a story of one of my, what I call irrational fears and how I deal with that or my family deals with that irrational fear of mine. The fear about the vaccine is not irrational. There are side effects. It's just that they're magnified. We spend most of our lives 
with our sunglasses of our belief system on. They're just different, that's all. But it is hard. It is hard. And the, I guess the hardest part is this. It's just like in this room right now, we all have our masks on. It's respect for you two folks that why I wear this. Because I'm actually protecting you more by wearing this than I am myself. And so I guess the thing that disturbs me the most is if I'm just harming me, then my little belief system is okay. But if I'm harming somebody else, then I'm sorry, I think we need to rethink that. We, we don't just let people drive drunk in this country. So by uh, mandates for vaccines, it's not attacking our rights? We have mandates for vaccines to go to college. I had to stand in line with the National Guard when I was eight-ish uh, to get my polio vaccine. When I was an intern, I was required to take a vaccine or I couldn't continue my training. And at that time, there was an unknown risk of contracting AIDS from getting that vaccine. Now, of course, that's not even anywhere near reality now. The vaccines are so much safer in the 40 years I've been in medicine. And so is it attacking people's rights? I don't know, but we've been there, done that. Do I like that we have to mandate? No, I don't like it because I, I wish we could manage the commons a little better so we didn't need mandates. Getting back to COVID issues, what can you tell me about long, t- long COVID? What's the best way to, I've heard it is long COVID, but is there a better term for it? I like long COVID as well, but the, our friends at the CDC decided to call it post-acute COVID syndrome, or PACS, P-A-C-S. Medicine likes to create long terms that have little acronyms that nobody understands. What is it, and how are you involved with it? It's persistence. There's a little bit of argument about the duration. Uh, I think most people are still settled now on the eight weeks duration. If you're two months out and you're still having symptoms, you're probably chronic COVID. The CDC just released a data set today thinking that around 30% of all people who get COVID will have some long COVID symptoms. That can be as mild as prolonged troubles with smell and taste to profound cardiovascular disability. The majority are minor, uh, the the smell and taste, but there are studies demonstrating as low as 8.5%, and I've seen as high as 45% of patients who've had COVID will end up with post-acute COVID syndrome. How dangerous is post-acute COVID syndrome? And I guess with dangerous being long-term, really bad effects for someone's livelihood. Right. So uh, I've seen people that are profoundly, uh, from a cardiopulmonary standpoint, disabled. Inability to walk literally almost across the room. And that was not the case before they were sick. I'm in the COVID clinic here seeing folks, and we don't know long-term what that will do. The psychological impact is the thing that has impressed me the most. I think a lot of people have been told, well, you're really not sick. You know how we do when someone was sick, oh, come on, you can go and all that. I think that's happened a lot. And I think so a lot of people begin to believe that it's all in their head. I can't tell you how many people, when I go in and tell them this is something real, this is not just in your head, it's like an incredible psychological relief for them. So I worry about that. I worry about eventual suicide rates in that population. I have a tremendous concern about that. John Arthur at Arkansas uh, just published this week, which is fascinating. So the target of COVID is the ACE2 receptor, you may recall. What John has demonstrated in in these long-term COVID patients 
is that they are now making autoantibodies, almost like somebody with lupus that makes antibodies that destroys the body. They are now making antibodies against the ACE2 receptor. And that may give us a target to treat. One of the reasons why I felt it was so important to open a chronic COVID clinic is so we can stay on top of developments. And if a therapy does develop, then we can affect it much quicker. I don't know what will come out of that. The NIH just released a huge grant that we're trying to collaborate with uh, NYU uh, is, is going to be the lead center where we can start to look at some of these therapeutic options. Are you working with Dartmouth as well? We have been working with Dartmouth for quite a while. They have a very good group that is primarily interested in the neurological aspects of this. Uh, you may have seen uh, data that just getting COVID has some impact on, on your ability to process information. And that's transient, we hope. But for long COVID, is it more than transient? That's the concern. In 1918, this same group is related to a group that discovered the link between subsequent development of neurologic syndromes in the aftermath of having the flu in 1918. And so one of their concerns is, are we going to repeat that? And that has really fed their interest in their research. And we were just fortunate to have connections to get connected with us folks. Is there a type of person that is more susceptible to this long COVID? Like uh, whenever I say type of person, right. uh, either socioeconomic or lifestyle. Yeah. Um, we've not been able to, to consistently demonstrate a risk factor for that. There have been early on some studies that I've seen studies suggest that mild COVID puts you at risk. I've seen studies that severe COVID puts you at risk. There is a syndrome called post-ICU syndrome where anybody, for any reason, who's been in an ICU, been on a ventilator, when they come out, they're profoundly debilitated. And one of the problems with that severe group is that we're having to dissect out how much of that is post-ICU syndrome. To answer your question, we don't know. So one of the things that I keep hearing from people who are, I don't know what the right word is, against all the mandates with COVID, they don't think it's as big of a deal or they don't trust information is because information changes from like Dr. Fauci or others who are uh, looked at as experts. But isn't it a situation that we're dealing with something so new that you're just getting new information all the time? Uh, some days when I start our weekly COVID update at noon, I uh, give a disclaimer. Normally you would say at that point in a talk, these are my conflicts of interest. I say, Everything that I uh, say, I believe was true within the last 30 minutes. Yeah, it's changing very rapidly. And as I just said a number of times, a paper comes out that says go north, a paper comes out that says go south, and you're trying to you know, put that together. And there have been some out there who have put forward ideas and treatments that are less than ideal. And they've unfortunately, because of the internet, been given an audience. And so they don't go through what we typically use in medicine called the peer review process, where a reputable journey, a journal will, will have a panel of experts that will review this. And even the speed of this has caused some of those reputable uh, journals. As you may recall, early on, there was a, a huge data set that was retracted by the New England Journal. And Lancet, I think, was the other journal. So yeah, it's just come out of so fast that the normal amount of time that we take to do things has been really sped up. It's so interesting that for years, and still is, 
our FDA is one of the most conservative of those type organizations on planet Earth. And Tony Fauci, of all people, is the guy, sort of at the insistence of his wife, who greatly accelerated that to really dramatically change our art in the AIDS epidemic. And so here we are dealing with that again. And who better to have there than Tony Fauci? So you brought in the treatments. This new one, ivermectin. Ivermectin, am I pronouncing that right? Right. Are you seeing people requesting it? And what are your thoughts on it? Not at a personal uh, request. The active four NIH trial, I think, is looking at this. I think I have the NIH one right uh, that's looking at that. But so far, the data that's come out that has been of any type of rigor uh, has demonstrated that it's ineffective. But there is a study to see if it is useful. Oh, there's there's, uh, been tons that have come out. They're all poorly designed, which sometimes is the speed necessary to accomplish this. But the active four trial, which so the NIH, uh, when we all got started, they, and it's A-T-I-V, I I think it's an acronym again. And there's like six of them, I think, these days. And they were designed to very quickly stand up clinical trials that were randomized, prospective, et cetera, that could look at some of these. And and I forget the number for the uh, Invermectin, but it is an arm in one of those trials. I don't know if that has been released, forgive me, but... It's in the class of hydroxychloroquine. So if you put COVID and hydroxychloroquine in a test tube, there's some interesting things that go on. But if you give it to human beings, it doesn't change outcome. And so do you want your data to be, well, it did something interesting for a test tube, or do you want your data to be, did it do something interesting for a human being? Ivermectin has not taken that next step. There's a lot of things you can make look pretty cool in a test tube. But to really prove that it changes outcomes, that's a whole different ball of wax. And the reason is, is we as humans are imperfect (laughs) and we're all different. And so you've got to have a really incredible difference in a test tube to be able to make it to be a difference in a human being. You just brought up hydroxychloroquine. I still hear from people, this is something that works and they just will not give it to people. You mean they will give it to people? Well, I've heard... They won't unless you beg for it. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. right, right, right. So, yeah, that's the case. And, and the reason is this. So let's say, like I said, hydroxychloroquine looks pretty good in a test tube. Human being trials out there. But, well, it might help. Let me give it to you. The trouble is, is there is an interval in your heart that if it gets too far apart that you can have bad things happen. You can die. And COVID makes that interval get longer. Well, guess what? Hydroxychloroquine makes it even longer. And so the trouble is, is your test tube may work, but you can't kill a test tube. The toxicity of a drug can kill a human being. And so that's where these things fail, is a number of people die from the toxicity, not the, the, the COVID that they're trying to treat. And that's where hydroxychloroquine has been uh, really uh, a problem. Uh, and we do not, it's not in our protocols. We do not recommend its use whatsoever. We do have, we hope next week, standing up a new agent. Maybe I shouldn't say the name because I'm not sure what kind of piece of paper I signed, sorry. Uh, That uh, is an experimental agent that is stronger in the test tube than uh, remdesivir, another drug we talk about. Uh, And not unlike some of those other drugs, has none of the cardiac toxicity. And we're very excited about the possibility of having that drug. Uh, We hope to start uh, next week with So that's another trial that you'll be involved with? Another trial we're involved with. 
How many trials would you say you're involved with right now in COVID? Oh, my. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, we probably still are in at least a dozen. You've got to realize we have trials that open up, and we'll put, I don't know if I ever how many patients on it, and then a month later we're off of it. And so it seems like we always got at least a dozen of those up in the air. Or the antivirals thus far have not been um, as effective as we had hoped. Again, we've got this hope for this one next week. And, of course, we really established that those that are having trouble with low oxygen in their blood, that steroids are, are definitely effective. I heard through the grapevine that there's going to be a COVID-19 treatment that's similar to, if I'm getting the name right, like Theraflu. Is there anything, tr- any truth to that? Not Theraflu. Yeah, what's the Tamiflu. Tamiflu, there we go. Right, uh, so Tamiflu is uh, the thing you take if your partner got flu and you're exposed. Uh, yes, that's uh, something we're very interested in. That is an active investigation in a number of centers looking at different parcels, if you will, of the COVID-19 spectrum. There's active treatment, there is prevention, and then there's what I call prophylaxis, which is I was exposed. And of course, as you may know, I just sent a patient today because of an exposure to get Regeneron because of his very high risk. So uh, there's a lot of hope for this drug. It's been all over the internet. It goes by a name I'm afraid I'll not even attempt to pronounce, um, monolocostat or something like that. Um, uh, And uh, there's a lot of hope for this drug. There is. As a class of agents, the antivirals have been less than promised. Again, remdesivir, the effects of hydroxychloroquine, the proposed effects of Invermectin. So uh, we we have hope in this. I know Tony Fauci himself has talked about this little pill. (laughs) Uh, So a lot of people have a lot of anticipation about this. What kind of rumors or misinformation have you been hearing about a lot? Well, uh, probably the big one right now that's really important is infertility. And there's no data that is of any scientific merit that demonstrates that this vaccine causes infertility. There's none. Zero zippo. There is data that becoming pregnant and getting COVID is a risk factor to not only lose your baby, but to die during pregnancy. So there's a stark separation between myth and reality in that space. That said, going back to our earlier conversation, there's a very special place in the world full of emotions called having kids. Been there, done that. And so I I have to have an equal amount of respect for those fears. And so that's a very hard space to try to bridge. What's next after Delta? Well, there's two strains out there that we know about, mu and lambda. I may get them backwards. I think lambda is the one from South Africa. I think mu is the one from Peru. I think that's right. But they were in their countries and they stirred up a little bit of trouble. And, and it's interesting, those countries sort of went up and came back down and they sort of trickled out into the world. And that's about all they've done. My theory, I'm not a virologist, but my theory on that is they've been outrun by Delta. The Delta can outreproduce them. This is sort of a virus's form of Darwin, if you will. How a virus succeeds in our ecosystem is it outreproduces everybody else. And the only reason I keep talking about mu and lambda is what's going to happen to mu and lambda when delta dies off? Are they going to then get a foothold? And there are data for both of them that they are more resistant to some of our therapies than is delta. So I don't know. It's concerning. But thus far, I mean, just look at the cases in the United States. We got a little trickling of 
lambda here and there, and I think there's a couple of cases of mu, but I mean, it's 99% delta. You know, how a virus succeeds in an ecosystem is, is very, very different than how human beings succeeds. And so I, I do think the reason we've been safe from those is it's been outpaced by the, the spread of Delta. How long do you anticipate us wearing masks? <laughs> um, you go to Japan in the wintertime. Um, I remember my first trip there was in 88. Everybody wore a mask. <laughs> and go back, they still wear a mask. There's a lot of countries where um, we, we know there's spread of infectious diseases and people are careful. And we've never done that in the United States. Well, we did a little bit in 1918. So I worry about flu this year because we didn't prep our immune system last year. We had a get-out-of-jail-free year. Why is that? Because we wore masks and washed our hands. So we didn't build immune memory to the repertoire of influenza changes, right? So we're going to get two years for the price of one this flu season. So go get your flu shot. That's number one. If you don't hear anything else I say today, go get your flu shot. I think masks are hugely important, and the type of mask is hugely important in type crowded indoor spaces. Airplane comes to mind, even though we have significant air circulation in, in airplanes. Uh, I'm actually more worried about things called movie theaters, indoor athletic facilities. I do worry about churches because people sing, and the more air you force out your respiratory system, the more viruses you put out your respiratory gases. So yeah, I think uh, some form of mask wearing is going to probably continue until next spring. It is for me. I don't want COVID. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Speaking of which, people who have had COVID and have had the vaccine and have gotten monoclonal antibodies, how safe at this point could they be from the virus? Hard to say. So great question. I hope I can explain it. I put a foreign body into you. Your immune system reacts to it. We have a elegant system of how it responds to it. And let's pretend there's a dozen steps. Monoclonal antibodies replicate step eight onward. So there's no immunologic memory from getting a monoclonal antibody. And some argue that it actually makes you more at risk down the road because of that, maybe. But if you've had it, you should have some B cell memory, T cell memory as well. So I don't think the combination helps you. Now, we, we know that the circulating half-life of, of most antibodies is very short. You get more protection because of some of the secondary effects. But I think long-term, having monoclonal antibodies certainly does not give you any benefit. And if given without a vaccination on board, certainly would be a huge risk for anybody to think a dose of Regeneron has lasting immunologic effects. And those who have had COVID and the vaccine, either COVID before, then the vaccine, or vaccine before, then COVID, what's their long-term outlook? They're in better shape than all, than all the rest of us um, because they have breadth to their exposure. As you may know, the Brits actually came out with it. You talked to me earlier about uh, should Moderna get Moderna and Pfizer get Pfizer. Well, I think it was the Brits, somebody in Europe. They actually came up with a purposeful plan to say, okay, I'm going to give you one of these, and your second shot is going to be one of these, and broaden the exposure of the immunologic repertoire by, by doing that. Do you want to say anything about any of the other studies that you're working on? Again, I'm very excited about our antiviral trial that may start up hopefully uh, next week. 
Uh, we hope to link that into the chronic COVID clinic, uh, to use that term. I really am interested in the work we're doing with looking at risk factors for bad outcomes. Some of the work we've been doing in the rural areas of Eastern North Carolina, because uh, certainly we know that the biggest risk factor for having fatal outcomes, uh, and even hospitalization as well, is do you have poorly controlled diseases that are very prevalent in eastern North Carolina. So if we really want to get out of it, get something uh, uh, lasting out of this is how do we uh, attack those? How do we diagnose diabetes earlier? How do we get after hypertension earlier? How do we get after obesity earlier? I think that's uh, the most lasting thing. That said, I grew up in, the, in medicine in the age of AIDS, and we did not even have a course in immunology when I went to medical school how old I am, and AIDS happened. And I saw what AIDS did for our understanding of, of immunology. And as a transplanter, so much of what we learned came from that set of data. What's going to happen with COVID is going to eclipse that. So even though those diseases are incredibly important, we need to work on them in Eastern North Carolina. From a advancement of medicine, uh, we're getting ready to have a, a time of renaissance because of what we're learning. Is COVID here to stay? Of course, COVID will become endemic, not unlike influenza did in 1918. You get a flu shot every year because of 1918. I imagine uh, CDC just came out today or yesterday and said it's okay to get your COVID booster and your flu shot at the same time. I can imagine that of all, I forget how many exact viruses they try to give us every year or, or variants of influenza, I bet one of them over there will be COVID somebody. So it will become endemic. Uh, the real question is the virulence and, and the spread and how much it interferes with our society. Anything else you want to add? If you've not been vaccinated, I really beg you to go get vaccinated. Call me. I'll talk to you. I understand fear. But the biggest concern I have is we talked about mu and lambda. What if we have another racehorse that comes out, another delta? We talked about getting rid of these masks. If we don't vaccinate faster than the virus replicates, we're not going to get out of this thing ever. It's just going to keep going and going and going and going because the virus wants to live. And it's going to mutate in a way that it will live. I've said many times there's only two effective ways to manage a pandemic. One is, uh, was Denmark or one of the Scandinavian countries, I just let it burn through. You know, forget the old people. Let's just let it burn through. And the young people won't die, and it'll be over with. And then everybody, we have herd immunity, right? And the other way is everybody's getting their vaccine. That's what we did for smallpox. That's what we did for polio. And guess what? I love the cartoon I've had that the kid sees the vaccination thing for a mom and said, Mom, what is that? And she, oh, that's from my, I forget, I think smallpox. And, and uh, he said, why don't I have one? And his mom said, because it worked. And so that's the thing I, I, um, I want everybody to understand. There's all these people talking about freedom. Not getting your vaccine is taking your freedom away. That's the, that's the part I can't wrap my head around. Dr. Paul Bolin, Chair of Internal Medicine at ECU's Brody School of Medicine. Thank you so very much. Sure. You've been extremely generous with your time today. Thank you. Okay. Well, that's it for Season 3, Episode 2 of Talk Like a Pirate. We hope this episode was informative as we continue to navigate this COVID-19 pandemic. 
Until the next time, please stay safe and healthy. And don't forget, always be yourself unless you can be a pirate. Then always be a pirate.